Good morning again. Good to see you here today. It just dawned on me. I walk away for one song, stand down there, and then come back up those steps again. You know I'm getting kind of old for that kind of thing. No, not really. But it does seem kind of odd, doesn't it? Sometimes you ever catch yourself doing things like that? Now, in reference to Bill's final announcement about the prayer leaders this morning, I did throw him a curve at the end as a a little switcheroo took place there, and uh, probably wise to just leave it alone and let it be. So, Bill, you're getting smarter as the years go by, perhaps. And then uh, I was, but I couldn't help but think about, if you bear with me just a moment, I couldn't help but think about a baccalaureate service. I'm not sure which one of the children it was. It seemed like it might have been Towsie's baccalaureate service. I was asked to do the invocation, you know, to lead the initial prayer at the baccalaureate service, and I agreed to do that, and my name was on the program. I felt so important, and uh, anyway, we had to go meet in the principal's office beforehand to go through all all the rigmarole, and the principal says, here's the order of service. Here's what's going to happen there, and Mr. Dyer, I'll introduce you. You know, after a few things, I'll introduce you, Mr. Dyer, and then you can you get up and you lead the invocation and everything. And so we got into the auditorium of the school, Putnam City West High School, and we, I was sitting on the stage there minding my own business very carefully and listening somewhat to the principal as he was giving all the introductions and so forth, and he, he gave something of the order of service and even who the speaker, somewhat of the speaker, was going to be that day. And he said, in leading our invocation, and now it's written on the program in front of him, and leading our, our invocation today will be And he turned to me and he said, and what was your name? (laughs) I'm sure I've told that story before. And I was so very helpful and I said. (laughs) And he said, the parent of one of our students will lead the invocation today. And that was the introduction. So it's best just to leave those things alone sometimes. Glad to be here today. I hope it is a great day for you. Glad to see each one of you here. Glad that some are able to join us. Uh, otherwise, we look forward to being able to be able to all be together again and to share these times of worship together. I think that's very important, and we need to we need to be pressing toward that goal in a good way. I said we're going to look at the fourth chapter of Matthew briefly today, and you know what takes place in that chapter is the temptations. We often refer to the temptations of Jesus. We're talking about those very direct events in which the devil confronts. Jesus, and there are, there are three that are listed for us, specifically listed for us there. Turn the stones into bread, cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, or uh, look at all these lands if you just bow down and worship me. The devil throws each one of those. I'll give all of these to you if you just bow down and worship me. And uh, Jesus responds to each and every one. Man shall not live by bread alone. Great statement. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Great statement. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Three of the great statements of the Bible that ought to ring in our ears and ought to be strong for us. And Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he brings those out. Because he's unafraid, he is unafraid to confront the devil. Notice verse 1 and 2, though, of that chapter. Verses 1 and 2 of those first 11 verses, but verses 1 and 2, we share those here this morning as we talk about Jesus being led to this confrontation. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Now, I threw that in because I think that's valuable and important, the latter verse in that. I don't think we need to read all the rest of it. I hope you know that story. If you don't, take some time to read it. It's one of those great stories in the life and the beginning of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus. But what I was thinking about, he was led to confrontation. He was led to confront the devil on this occasion. Because I think we need to remember that the the forward, the Christian life, the outward Christian life is designed to be somewhat confrontational, is is designed to confront. But at the same time, we look at ourselves and we tend to avoid confrontation. Most of us don't like to confront people or situations. It makes us uncomfortable. Now, I know there seem to be some people that are just always spoiling for a fight, but they're, they're not many, and you're not generally of that nature. I think in some cases, we will just do about anything to avoid a confrontation. Think of Simon Peter denying Jesus. Just avoid those events. Maybe you remember there was a man in the very beginning of time. His name was Adam. And he and his wife were confronted by the Lord. said, who told you you didn't have any clothes? Oh, well, you know, and it gets down to the situation. We ate of that fruit, and uh, my, my wife, it's this woman you gave me that did it. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God, as if you could do that. They tried to hide from God to avoid that confrontation that they knew was coming. We, I'm just saying we don't like to jump into confrontation. We're hesitant about that. We might even know that we are challenged to be people who are peacemakers. Jesus does that. We're to pursue peace with all people. As much as lieth in you, live at peace with all men, Paul, Paul writes. But you know, we should know a secret. It's not going to be a secret long, is it? We should know this secret. Even peace is not found without confrontation. You wouldn't know peace if not for war. Well, I got that out of a television show, so I don't know whether that's very accurate or not. But but you understand, we understand peace because we understand conflict. We want peace. But even peace is not found without understanding, knowing, and recognizing confrontation. Think particularly about the life of Saul of Tarsus. This young man grew up in a very stringent Jewish custom and tradition, and perhaps the whole instructed life that he had lived pointed him in the direction of confrontation, because they were a people of confrontation. They were outward. They didn't mind confronting one another with an idea, with a concept, with a question, with a, with a newer tradition or a different idea. The boundaries of right and wrong were constantly pushed in one direction or another. Immediately after Paul, Saul, I should say, Saul of Tarsus was converted, immediately after he was converted, he began to go and confront Jews about his newfound belief. He'd go right into the synagogue and try to preach to them, or did preach to them, that Jesus was the Christ. In fact, there in Acts 9, it says, and immediately... He wasn't wasn't afraid to confront. He wasn't afraid to go in and take care of it. But still, he was not. He was not spoiling for a fight. He wasn't just going out looking for someone to debate and to stir up trouble. He was just forward with what he believed to be true, regardless of who that audience was. He may adapt his motive, 
uh, not his motive, his motif. He may adapt his, his manner is what I'm trying to say. But he was not afraid to tell people what he believed in the best way possible. Even as the Lord was making known to Ananias, the, the man in Damascus, to go and see this Saul of Tarsus, even as he was making it known, the Lord was letting Ananias know, this guy's going to deal with confrontation. He's going to deal with struggles. He's going to suffer much for me. His life was set for that kind of thing. He would suffer many things for the Lord, and his life would constantly be one of confrontation. In fact, in fact, he even had some pretty stringent con- uh, confrontations with some pretty important people, kings and other leaders, and even, even, he notes one, Simon Peter. I withstood him to the face, he said. Anybody want to do that? Simon Peter to the face? Well, he did, Galatians 2, verse 11. But we're not typically of the nature that we want to go into confrontation. We'll avoid it, as I said, at all costs. So I think perhaps we have gone too far in the other direction. Now, we don't want to be known as the people who are spoiling for a fight, always looking for a fight. At the same time, could it be that we are so afraid of losing in a confrontation? Could it be that we're so afraid of losing in a confrontation that we fail to stand for the things that we should? Let that soak in just a minute. And by losing, I mean that we fear losing our relationships with family with friends, with co-workers or business. I think we need to understand that while many confrontations are poised against dreaded enemies, that's not always the case. A confrontation does not have to be harsh or unfriendly. It can just simply be a difference of opinion shared by two people, or it can be a very different viewpoint on right and wrong. In the 1830s, Alexander Campbell and Robert Owen undertook a debate. Very different viewpoints. Robert Owen being basically an atheist, at least agnostic, but generally an atheist. And Alexander Campbell, a strong believer in God and the Scriptures and the New Testament teaching. They engaged in their debates, and they were very strong debates, and you can read them today. They are in print, probably find them on the Internet They were miles apart, being Christians and atheists. Still, the two men engaged and enjoyed in a a great friendship and respect for one another over the years, though trying to help the other one understand, especially Camel helping Owen understand the value and the power of the Scriptures. So what I'm saying to you is just because it was confrontation does not mean it was necessarily harsh. Some are. Jesus had a very direct confrontation with the very heart of evil, the very contrast to God in the devil. So note very carefully what we find here in Matthew 4. It says Jesus was led. He was led of the Spirit. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want you to think about this, the idea of Jesus being led. Because I think we have our pictures of Jesus and who he was and his presence and how he showed himself. We have those pictures in mind. Uh, And some of them hopefully will contrast contrast some of the visual paintings of a, a much earlier time. 
But we have our pictures of Jesus and what maybe he even looked like in our mind or how he behaved, what his voice sounded like, what kind of character, how he would have responded <clears throat> to us in a way. For some, for some, it has been kind of like that song in the, in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, not advocating the musical by any means, but Mary Magdalene, her viewpoint in that as the writer put it in that, that wasn't necessarily Mary Magdalene, but in the story, as you understand, she said, he's a man. He's just a man. I think that's probably what many think today. He was a man, just a philosopher, a good thinker in some ways, and had an impact on the world for sure. We have our pictures of Jesus. So consider the visual, emotional, and intellectual images that you have of him. These generally depend on what we know of his life and of his ministry. For as John says, there are many other things I could have written that would have more than filled the page. I don't have enough paper and ink to write down all the things that Jesus said and did. John 20, verse 30 and 31. But these are written that you might believe. And from them we draw our pictures, visual and, and, and intellectual and emotional, that we have of Jesus in his ministry and in his life. And being led is not necessarily one of them. But it says here he was led. But how was he led? He was led by the Spirit, it says. Oh, so there was some mystical voice, some mystical force that was pulling on. No, I don't want you to think that there was some mystical force instructing him and telling him, okay, now it's time to get up and go out into the wilderness. So... No, really, this is, this is more of a directive of the commitment of his life and who he was, of God, his Father living in him. This is not some voice directing him saying, here, you're going to go here, turn left at this corner. This is what was in him, what was in his life, and what he put forward. To be led by the Spirit was to be led by the nature of who he was and what was being uh, nurtured and living within him. And there being led by the Spirit, he was led into the wilderness. Did you ever wonder why in the world he went into the wilderness? Why go out into the wilderness? If you're going to face confrontation, if you're going to face the devil, and you're going to defeat the devil, don't you want to do it with witnesses? You know, you want to beat the devil down. You want somebody to see what you're doing. So later you say, hey, I beat the devil. You say, well, I want to see that. I think about some of the football games today, you know, not that many people are getting to watch them as much as they were a year or so ago. They say, well, I saw it, I saw it. Jesus went out alone to face the devil. Did you ever wonder why he went into the wilderness? And not in the presence of witnesses? I think we need to understand it's about him. It's about him and who he is. It's not about having the distractions or the thoughts of other people. It's not about having somebody tell him what he should say or shouldn't say, how he should handle it, how he shouldn't. It's not about having somebody distracted by the thoughts of the devil and bringing the, his own temptation into the, confront, into the confrontation of other people. It was not about that at all. It was about him. That's who it was about and who he was to be and what he was to accomplish. So that's why I think it probably was into the wilderness that he went away from people. But he went into the wilderness, led of the Spirit, for a purpose, to be tempted. You know, sometimes we think we're going to be tempted, we avoid it. We even pray, don't we? Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Lead us not into, you can, you can finish that, can't you? Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Well, let's don't misunderstand. 
Jesus needed to confront what would be in his life. He needed to address that so that the writer of Hebrews could later write and we would understand that he was in all points tempted like we are to show that he was who he was and that he could handle what he could handle. But we need not think that this was a tempting by God, for it was not God tempting him in that case. James 1 bears out, we are tempted of our own desires, drawn away of our own desires, and that temptation working on us there, James 1 verse 13. This is connected to who he was, the unique nature of these temptations. Very human, but very unique to him. It's connected to who he was. For note the phrase that James puts before us, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own, his own, we could say personal desires. You see, our temptations are connected to who we are. Jesus' temptations, though very similar, very much like our own, are connected to who he is and who he was. You see, he was, as he was led, following his purpose. He was following what he needed to be and what he was to be. He could have ignored it all. He could have just, he just set it aside. He didn't have to do any of the things that he did. But if he had done that, he would have lost it all. For the writer of Philippians, Paul, gives to us in verse 9, and 9 10, and 11 of that second chapter, said, God has so given him then a name, a name at which knees will bow and tongues will confess. God has lifted him up and given him a place to be honored and praised because he was willing to follow what he needed to follow that day. So Jesus was led of the drive, of the spirit, of the nature that was very much within him. But it also tells us he had to make himself ready for it. He fasted for 40 days. You see, Jesus took time to make ready before he was to go. How many times have we, have we used that little phrase? One, two, three. To make ready, three to go. We're up to two. He was to make ready. You see, Jesus wasn't unprepared. He wasn't just going into this blind. He was going into this prepared. If you think about it, as Luke bears out for us in the latter part of Luke chapter 2, that he spent 30 years getting ready for what he was to be doing. He had been 30 years growing in, in, uh, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. Luke bears it out for us that he had spent those 30 years getting ready. And there in Luke 3, he says, and at about 30 years of age, reached a point that it was time and he went about doing what he was doing. Think of all the things that went into those years. Think of the things that had happened with him. Think of how he had grown in wisdom and stature before God and man. Think of the things that probably happened there in Nazareth about his growing and his learning, of his working with Mary and with Joseph, of being there in the synagogue of of uh, learning and being taught and sharing those experiences. But on top of that, he spent 40 days getting ready. He didn't just go in and say, I know enough, I'm ready for this, let's go and let's just take it off the cuff. This was not an extemporaneous or off the cuff experience. This fasting was truly an act of preparation. It was an action of preparation and even of obedience to God. It prepared him and helped prepare him. 
You know, 40 days of solitude, 40 days of just thinking about what you're dealing with and not spending your time preparing uh, the daily routines got him ready for what he was to do. We're not unaccustomed to that kind of thing. But I read a story sometime sometime back about the 11 athletes who in 1896 went to Athens to compete in the first modern Olympic Games. Word had gotten out that the the Olympics were going to begin again. They were going to be in Athens. And so the, the Americans decided, we're going to take a team. And they gathered together these who would go and pre- that would prepare and go and do this. And when they did, they started looking at what do we do in the Olympics. And they started reading about the, the weights of things and the distances and so forth. And so they prepared for these things. And when they arrived, they did they, great preparation. They went thinking, we're never going to accomplish anything great, but we're going to go. We're going to give it our best and do our best. And when they got there, they found out that they had been working with too heavy a weights. They had been working harder than they needed to work in order to prepare for this in a way. But because they put in that kind of preparation in 1896, those 11 men won 11 gold, 7 silver, and 2 bronze medals. You can read about it. It's the truth. Now, they didn't win the most medals at that Olympics. The Greeks did, I believe. But that young 11-man American team went over there because of that kind of preparation. They were more than ready for what they had to face on that occasion. You see, what I'm telling you is there's no magic, no miracle here in what Jesus is doing before the devil. You might say, well, he moved about maybe in a miraculous way, but you understand his answers, his thinking. It was not about something miraculous. It was not some sort of magic Because it was about preparation. 30 years and 40 days of preparation. No magic elixir to this achieved ability. He just prepared and went. Time to make ready. And then he was hungry. You know, I guess I've looked at that so many times and I've thought about it. Yeah, he was hungry. You go without eating for 40 days, I mean, what are you going to be? You're going to be hungry. We go four hours without eating. We're hungry. Two, okay, two hours without eating. We're hungry. How would you like to have a son-in-law like that in your family, okay? But you know what I mean. We get hungry, don't we? We understand what hunger is. We're so used to eating. They were too. They ate. Maybe not quite like we do. They didn't didn't stop at the nearest fast food joint and grab something on the way. They didn't have 7-Eleven down the street to get what you wanted as you were going. They didn't have refrigerators quite like we do today or pantries full of food. But they ate. They ate. They knew what it was to eat. They were prepared to eat and they ate regularly. 40 days fasting he was hungry some have pointed out yes but there was some eating that went on during that time even if there was in in terms of modern fasting it's possible but in the end you're going to be hungry and he was hungry but he was hungry not so much about food I don't think that's what it's talking about while the devil uses that term Jesus hunger wasn't so much about food it wasn't about bread to eat 
His hunger was, de- was to deal with those temptations to put bef- that were going to be put before him. It was about dealing with the situation he was finding in his life. It's like the writer in Hebrews, again, tells us, laying aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. What are you going to do after you lay all that aside? You're going to run. You think about the teams, the college football teams that are now, they put all this effort in. They've tried to prepare themselves. They've tried to avoid disease and everything else. They want to play. You don't want to just prepare and say, I'm in the best shape of my life and not do anything about it. Jesus is prepared. He was hungry for what he was going to deal with. He was hungry for the righteous acts that were before him. To be what he needed to be for us, he had to apply the fasting to the filling of God's word. He even shared that idea. For what did he say in Matthew 5 and verse 6, a little bit later? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He was hungry for what he had to deal with. He was hungry for what was coming his way. But it happens, doesn't it? And that's the reality. When the preparations are done, it's time to take action. I was thinking about the Old Testament story in Judges chapter 4 where Deborah, the female judge, Deborah was judging the people and she calls for Barak, the leader, the military leader to come in. She says, Barak, listen to this. Barak, verse 6 and 7 of Judges 4. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, has he not commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. The Lord has said, didn't she said, hasn't the Lord told us, go, it's time to go what she's saying there's more to the story than that and of course it's one of those interesting stories in the book of judges but it's time to go you can sit around and prepare all day you can gather all the army you want but until you go into the field and you take on the battle you haven't done really anything worthwhile and so we're talking about hunger of a different kind. There's no doubt that Jesus was physically hungry. It says in verse 11 that the angels, at the end of this time, the angels came and ministered to him. I can see them bringing him food to eat, much like Elijah, as he wanders into the wilderness, and the angel bring, having the food prepared for him on the fire when he's awakened. There's no doubt that Jesus was physically hungry. But it's the hunger for righteousness that is the driving force, and it is a driving force to, con- to confront whatever may be contrary. When you're hungering for right, anything that is contrary, anything that is wrong, deserves that confrontation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 34, when he had corrected so many things that he had to say to them, he says, and the rest I will set in order when I come. In other words, he's ready to be among people he loves and to correct the things that need correcting. That's what it comes down to. When I say Jesus was led, he was led from what was within him. He was led into the wilderness to get himself ready, kind of like cramming for that final exam. And he was led to take on in confrontation the temptations of the devil. And every Every time, each one of them, 
It is written, it is written, it is written. He was ready for each one that came. There are, it ought to well within us a sense of appreciation, a sense of pride, if you will, that Jesus did what he did and confronted the devil as he did. It lays the groundwork for you and me, and I believe what he's given us here. As Jesus, our leader, was led. We don't need to fear or even avoid confrontation. We just need to follow the pattern of Jesus by preparing, by focusing, by carefully doing what needs to be done. No doubt about it. Yes, I understand. We all tend to reserve ourselves. and We don't, we don't want to confront our loved ones. We don't want to confront people around us because if people get angry with us, it causes us problems, and then we, we end up with people pushed away from us. Sometimes that's because we just don't use much tact. But the Lord sets it in order. He says, you want to throw something at me? Here's what God says about it. And in his own wonderful way, he shows us exactly the best way to deal with whatever we are confronting and need to confront in our own lives. We're going to sing a song. Let it be a song of invitation and encouragement this morning. Again, I appreciate each one of you being here today. I hope you're glad to be here today and to share this time. We're going to sing this song. Let it be one of opportunity and invitation. If there was someone who needed to respond this morning, we want you to do so. We want to encourage you to be right with the Lord. If you've never obeyed the gospel, if you need to even know more, we'll gladly share that with you. We can make the opportunity available to you this very day. And if there's another need you had, let us pray with you, help you, get you on the right track, whatever it might be. If you need to come this morning, please do so. We're going to stand as we sing this song.